Joe here for episode seven of the Upper Memory Block podcast, or what I like to call the uh, one day late and hopefully not one dollar short episode. So I guess I should probably start off by uh, by apologizing. Uh, I, I do apologize for, for the show being a little bit late this week, but um, I don't know if I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but for the past uh, the past year, my wife Fran has been uh, doing... Has been has gone back to school and she's been doing a, a master's degree in human resources and industrial relations. Very fancy sounding. And uh, this week she found out, or we both found out, that she uh, she got a job. So she's almost finished. She's finished school in a couple of weeks, and uh, and she's been looking for work. And she has found some work. So uh, finding out that she uh, got that offer prompted us to uh, to have to do a couple of things and uh, and spend a little bit of time out celebrating and and this and that. So uh, unfortunately, the podcast got pushed by uh, by a day or so. So, anyways, that's uh, that's what's going on in my life. Woohoo! Isn't that incredible? Another fun little thing that uh, happened to me this week is I, or a week or two ago, I I won an auction on eBay for a Roland MT32 multi tim timber timbra timbra whatever sound unit. Uh, and this week it came in the mail, so uh, I'm very excited about that, and uh, I'm gonna get it all hooked up. I haven't had a chance quite yet to uh, to hook it up to my uh, to my Windows machine because I'm lacking a MIDI interface that I have to go and pick up. Uh, kind of get a, a straightforward USB one channel or two channel MIDI interface, and um, once that's done, I will tell you guys how fun it is to experience some really great uh, MIDI music on uh, on my on my cool old games uh i have turned it on i plugged it in it, it powers up very nicely it's in really great shape considering how old it is it looks like it's a, a first generation mt32 but uh you know we really do have to do a, a show about all this uh this cool sound hardware one of these days but that is that so that's my my <laughs> my life experience over the past two weeks welcome to the world of joe and enough of that. So on to the news. So there isn't a ton of news. Um, I guess the most important thing to talk about is that both of the uh, projects that I talked about in the last show, the uh, Space Venture Project and the Tex Murphy Project Fedora Kickstarters have ended and they both funded. They both reached their funding goals. So that's really cool. So we're going to hopefully get those two games pretty soon. And now when Kickstarters fund, I guess the um, the standard course for them is to not necessarily stop collecting donations. Now, when the project hits its funding goal and it reaches the end of the campaign as defined on Kickstarter, you can no longer give money to the project on Kickstarter. But what a lot of them do is within the last you know couple of hours of the campaign, they open up a PayPal account. And uh, so now it seems that um, despite the fact that the campaign is done, you can still provide them uh, with donations if, uh, if you are so inclined on PayPal. So you guys can still go and check out their Kickstarter pages and link, have links to their PayPal uh, donation pages. And on these PayPal donation pages, they have what they like to call stretch goals. So they've reached their goal on Kickstarter. The game is going to be made. But, you know, if we if we raise, say, another $50,000, like, for example, on the Space Quest uh, Kickstarter, if they raise an additional $50,000, they'll do uh, multi-language translations on top of that, they'll do a couple of other things. And on top of that, you know, maybe they'll try and do much higher quality characters, uh, a mini game, extended content, things like that. So, you know, the project, while the Kickstarter is over, the projects are not done. Tex Murphy is, uh, is in the same boat. So uh, you can still go and check those guys out. Uh, a fun little game that I was able to, uh, to finally check out in the intervening time between uh, between these two shows, is I, I got a chance to actually play the Space Quest Two remake by Infamous Adventures. Now it's really a lot of a lot of fun. It's very true to the original, but being that it's a remake, it was kind of brought up from the very old low res EGA blocky version of Space Quest Two to kind of match more of the graphic style and interface of say Space Quest Four or Five. 
And uh, because of that change of interface, they actually did modify some of the puzzles because a lot of the puzzles were kind of directly associated to typing things into the parser, which doesn't really exist in this interface. But, uh, you know, the way they did it was really cool. The game is still a lot of fun. Very true to the original. Um, the graphics are fun and all that. The only, my only beef with it, let's say, is, uh, you know, to me, the voice acting could have been a bit better. You know, at times I found that it was a little bit amateurish. The sound quality was fine. Uh, the narrator was kind of trying to do a Gary Owens impersonation. So he was trying to talk like this all the time and really put on a voice. And it didn't always kind of sit very well. It would kind of take me out of things. And I found the voice that they used for Roger was a little bit weird. He was a little bit whiny or a little bit whinier than I would have thought. A little bit whinier than the original Roger voice. But, uh, you know, aside from that, it's still very fun. That's my only real beef with it. And, uh, you know, I would really go and check it out at Infamous Adventures website. I will link that in the show notes. Now, the reason I bring up this, uh, this Space Quest 2 remake, aside from the fact that I wanted to talk about it, is that Infamous Adventures also have a Kickstarter project running. And it is called Quest for Infamy. So the Infamous Adventures, or I believe they're called... They may have changed their name a little bit to Infamous Games or something to that effect. But anyways, the Infamous Adventures team is endeavoring to make a new game in the style of the Quest for Glory series. Uh, so basically, this is more of... It's still an adventure game with all the tropes of, of these classic adventure games. But it also has kind of action-y RPG elements. Uh, I didn't play the Quest for Glory series very much when it was out. I played a little bit of Quest for Glory 4, I think if I remember correctly, um, and I did enjoy it. So if the Infamous Adventures guys, you know, keep to the level that they've been doing with the, the Space Quest 2 remake, and before that they also did a remake of King's Quest 3, uh, this should be a pretty good project. So they have, they're, they're only trying to raise $25,000 because this is more of like a fan indie project. So, you know, they're not making their living off of this, and by extension, the, you know, development time will be longer and and all that but they're trying to keep it to the same level as their other stuff so they've only asked for twenty five thousand dollars they broke that quite a while ago and so they're into uh stretch goal territory as well and uh you know for them their stretch goals are uh things like deeper documentation a bigger game world mobile platform support and finally if they really hit something like eighty thousand dollars they're going to try and shoot for uh maybe cutting the development time in half so again, check that out if you want to go search Kickstarter for uh, Quest for Infamy or Infamous Quests. That's the name of the company now. They've changed it from Infamous Adventures to Infamous Quests. But look them up on Kickstarter, and as usual, I will link their campaign into the show notes. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Over So now on to our main topic of the cast the incomparable Wolfenstein 3D. So Wolfenstein 3D was released on May 6th, 1992. It was developed by id Software and published by Apogee Software. So as usual, we will talk a little bit about the genre of this game. So Wolfenstein 3D is a first-person shooter, or FPS, which is probably how I'm going to refer to it for the next little while. Um, well, it's most certainly not the first FPS ever created. It tends to be credited as both establishing the genre in its popularity and also as the template for kind of a quote-unquote pure FPS game. So with that in mind, how do we really describe a, a first-person shooter? Well, as we can glean from the name of the game, the player sees you know the game world from a first-person perspective. Now, what this means is that the player observes the game through the eyes of the game's protagonist. Uh, you know, you're kind of inside his body as, you know, he's your avatar, and you generally don't see much of, of the avatar's body, except generally their hands, and in some other games, if you look around, you can see feet or other things like that. So this brings us to the second defining characteristic of the genre, the shooting. From this first-person perspective, you're provided with weapons. Generally, these are ranged weapons, which, depending on the setting of the game, can consist of realistic guns and explosives, or futuristic weapons like lasers, or even fantasy-style magic weapons like staves and things that shoot, you know, 
magic missiles or fire or whatever, or even projectiles launched directly from your hand. Whatever the goal of the story of an FPS, the general concept involves navigating a number of level maps from start to finish, defeating enemies, and collecting power-up items, ammunition, and additional, maybe better weapons, either from fallen enemies or from finding them in the environment. Uh, some levels may simply end by getting to the ending, I guess you want to call it a gate, of the level. Others may have tougher boss battles, and generally the final level of the game culminates in a very, very challenging final fight with the game's main villain. Uh, FPSs usually have multiple difficulty levels, which affect a variety of factors, including things like number of enemies, uh, levels of enemy health, enemy accuracy, and also your health as a player, and how much, you know, kind of the enemy's uh, attacks affect your health. In higher difficulty levels, you're likely to face a greater number of enemies with greater survivability, and just all around the game tends to be much more challenging deaths tend to come much more quickly and much more often and uh you know just like uh we talked about in uh, in in the adventure gaming genre this is potentially a, a situation for save early and save often so the story uh, as little as it's exposed in the game there is indeed a basic story premise to Wolfenstein 3D. Uh, in fact, the game is actually separated into six episodes, each of which uh, having its own storyline. The first three episodes form a single story arc, as do the last three. I'll quickly skim over each one, since a skimming is about all the game really bothers with anyways. So, as the player, you see the world through the eyes of William B.J. Blaskovich. William was born in the United States on August 15th, 1911, to a family of Polish immigrants. Uh, during his youth, his friends bestowed him the nickname BJ. Uh, we don't really know the story behind that, and maybe I don't want to hear it. Uh, so during World War II, uh, BJ rose to the rank of sergeant in the U.S. Army Rangers and was subsequently recruited into the United States Office of Secret Actions, which is a fictional U.S. Special Forces Command. Uh, there, he's tasked with investigating rumors of occult activity within the upper levels of the Third Reich's command structure. So, in the first episode, entitled Escape from Castle Wolfenstein, BJ has been captured while trying to find the plans for Operation Eisenfaust, or Iron Fist, if your German's up to par, which mine is not, uh, and was imprisoned in Castle Wolfenstein. Uh, initially, he's armed only with a knife and a Walter P-38 pistol, which uh, he obtained by overpowering the guard in his cell. So BJ tries to escape the castle prison, taking on SS guards. He eventually finds himself face-to-face -face with the prison guard head Hans Gross. Defeating Hans allows BJ to escape the castle and continue on with his mission. This leads us to the second episode, Operation Eisenfaust. BJ finds out that the operation is in fact real, and that the Nazis are creating an army of undead mutants in Castle Hollehammer. I don't know what that means either. BJ enters the castle and confronts the mad scientist Dr. Schabs, creator of the mutants. Defeating the doctor ends the research program. And success in that episode leads us on to episode 3, entitled Die, Führer, Die. So, chronologically, this is the last episode in the game, even though it's only the third of six episodes. So fighting through Nazi soldiers and uh, attacking the bunker underneath the Reichstag, BJ finds himself up against Adolf Hitler, who is equipped with a robotic suit and four chain guns. Defeating Hitler ends this episode and the Second World War as a whole. BJ is a hero! Woohoo! But of course, that's not the case because there's three more episodes to play. So the next three episodes, which are known as the Nocturnal Missions, form actually a prequel storyline focusing on the Germans' plans uh, for chemical warfare. So episode four, A Dark Secret, deals with the pursuit of the scientist responsible for developing the weaponry. So BJ's task is to enter the weapons research facility and hunt down yet another mad scientist, Dr. Otto Giftmacher. And apparently Giftmacher means poison maker. They're very creative in their names in, uh, at id Software. Uh, uh, hunting him down and defeating him... 
Again, leads us from episode four to episode five, Trail of the Madman, which takes place in Castle Erlagen. <laughs> I love loving saying these names. It's so much fun. Uh, BJ's goal is to find the maps and plans of uh, the Nazis' chemical war, guarded by Gretel Gross. She is the sister of the head guard from episode one, Hans Gross. So there's some some family values in this game as well. As you can see, the stories in this are a little bit silly, which is why I'm making fun of them a bit. But honestly, don't worry. It's a good game. We'll go on. Uh, the story comes to a close in the final act, Confrontation, set in Castle Offenbach. The final battle is fought between BJ and the leader of the Chemical War Initiative, General Fettgeist, which apparently means fat face. All right. So <laughs> now with that incredible deep compelling complex storyline out of the way let's get down to the whole meat of this the gameplay for this i'll concentrate on episode one since almost anyone who played this game experienced this episode so as i explained in the plot section the game begins with you as bj standing over the dead body of a nazi guard you've taken possession of his pistol containing eight rounds and a combat knife which you can use in emergencies when you uh, run out of ammo so, with your pistol in your hand, you approach the door and hit the spacebar. The door opens and you emerge into the depths of Castle Wolfenstein. Making your way around, you will encounter a variety of enemies of differing abilities. In the first level, you really only encounter basic guards, or Nazi soldiers, equipped with pistols. Uh, the guards are very, very easy to kill, taking usually about one to four pistol shots, depending on what difficulty level you've chosen. Also, they'll always pause for a second or two before firing at you, which tends to give you the perfect opportunity for the kill. Uh, at times, the guards will be hidden in small alcoves or around corners, or they may appear in larger groups. Uh, if guards are in a group of mixed enemies, they're usually your lowest priority to kill, as almost all of the other enemies in the game are more lethal and much more difficult to kill. Uh, dead guards generally drop an ammo clip containing uh, four pistol rounds. Next up, we have the SS soldiers, who wear blue uniforms and wield machine guns. These soldiers have the highest hit points of any of the regular enemies in the game and are very deadly at close range on account of, as I said, their machine gun. Uh, these guys are priority one to killing groups. The best way to take them down is to keep your distance, as their accuracy really goes down as you get farther away. On death, they drop a machine gun with six rounds in it if you don't already have one. If you do already have one, just like the regular soldiers, they drop an ammo click ammo clip containing four rounds. Later in the game, we also have the officer, who is very similar to the standard uh, Nazi soldier in that he wields a pistol and has relatively low hit points. However, he's the fastest enemy in the game. While not as critical to kill as the SS soldiers, a group of officers can whittle down your HP pretty quickly because they fire uh, at a pretty high rate and they move around pretty quick. And finally, we have the Mutant, which is a type of super soldier created by the evil Dr. Shobbs in Episode 2. Uh, they have an automatic pistol, which is actually physically implanted in their chests. And unlike all other enemies in the game, the mutants do not make a sound when they see you. This allows them, if you, know, you come at them from a weird angle and don't see them, to sneak up on you. At close range, just a few rounds from these guys and their embedded automatic pistol will toast you so these guys are definitely uh, a priority to take down, otherwise you may very well lose a life. I should also mention the dogs. Uh, occasionally you'll run into German Shepherds that will run at you and try and bite you. Now, the dogs aren't really much to deal with because they only actually have a single hit point. Uh, the issue a lot of people tend to encounter with them is they feel bad shooting a dog even though it's digital. Uh, I had a friend who actually re completely refused to kill the dogs. Uh, he would actually run away from them and try and trap them behind doors and whatever, and only if he was really forced to and they were really up in his face biting him and taking down his health would he finally, you know, uh, take them down. So the dogs, while not a huge threat, <laughs> tended, in my experience, to be more of a an issue for uh, for animal rights people and, and just people in general not really caring about uh, about killing animals or not really caring to kill animals. So each enemy, aside from the mutants, shouts something when they see you. This gives you an advantage in two ways. Firstly, you'll know there's an enemy about. Secondly, based on what they say to you, because they all say different things like halt or other things like that, uh, you'll know what type of enemy you're up against. So, you know, if you hear an SS soldier say his, you know, his line, then uh, you may want to step back and, and rethink your approach because you're going to have to take him down 
pretty quickly. So here's a little bit of a sample of, of some game audio. I was trying to find uh, the sounds isolated so I could just play them over and over again, but uh, it's actually a bit more difficult than I thought to find them. And so I'll just play a little clip of audio this way and, uh, and we'll go from there. So the goal is to run through each map until you find the elevator to the next floor. Each episode has a total of nine floors plus one bonus level that can be reached by finding a secret elevator somewhere in each episode. Uh, I believe this is also the first game we've covered that uses the, uh, I guess we could call it somewhat antiquated concept of lives. Uh, you begin each new game with three lives and you can gain more lives by finding power-ups or gaining 40,000 points. Uh, points are gained by killing enemies, finding secret rooms, and collecting Nazi treasure, which is randomly strewn around the castle, which I find a little bit funny, because God knows if I had treasure, I probably wouldn't just leave it laying around in the hallway. But then again, I'm also not a Nazi. At uh, the end of each level, you get a report which covers uh, the percentages of enemy kills, treasure found, and secrets discovered. So, um, you know, the better you do, the more bonus points you get, and, uh, you know, the more extra lives you get and, and things like that. All You can also get extra bonus points for finishing in a kind of below par time. Each episode ends with an epic final battle with a boss. Uh, you can't sneak up on bosses. They're always facing you. Uh, and the main reason for this is because they are only rendered looking in one direction. They never actually drew them from... Like the soldiers and everything else, like all the other enemies, are rendered from eight different directions. So you can come up behind them or from their side or anything like that. The bosses, only the front-on view. So you can't run around behind them. You can't sneak up on them. They always, always see you. Bosses, of course, have much more HP than, uh, than normal enemies. And they also tend to have much stronger weapons. Uh, when you defeat them, you get to watch an instant replay of their deaths on the death cam. Uh, despite the lower res graphics, the deaths are generally pretty gruesome. They tend to, you know, fall apart into a pile of steaming guts with blood and and all that stuff. So, uh, so that's the gameplay in a nutshell. Wolfenstein 3D is is quite straightforward, and uh, you know, there's really no twists and turns. It's a game about shooting Nazis, and that's just what you do. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block podcast. Time for. So, Wolfenstein 3D was definitely a bit of a technological advancement of its time. Uh, the graphics were rendered at 320 by 200 VGA at 256 colors. Uh, but the more important aspect of this wasn't so much, you know, the fidelity and the color depth and all of things like that. It was really more the perspective that, uh, that the graphics were rendered from and the speed at which they were rendered. Uh, while the graphics were most definitely not 3D, they were considered kind of, I guess you could call them, pseudo 3D. So the game used sprites in kind of a similar manner to Wing Commander, uh, giving the impression of the depth of a 3D world using 2D graphics. Uh, today the game looks quite dated, but at the time, before 3D processing, it was really the best there was. And now I know I also mentioned the speed at which the, uh, the graphics render and the cool, the thing with that is that it was almost too fast. And I do definitely recall, and I think I even may have mentioned it at the end of last week's episode, that after playing this game for a, for a very relatively short amount of time, I would actually start to get motion sick because things would happen a bit too quickly and uh, it kind of tended to make you a little bit nauseous. And while that wasn't really an ideal thing, the fact that they could get the graphics rendering that quickly on machines of the time was uh, was really quite impressive. Uh, the game sound, which you heard a little bit back there in the uh, in the other in the 
the little clip I played, was was perfectly serviceable, and uh, as the game was released to different platforms, it tended to get, you know, it tended to get higher fidelity. Uh, the PC edition supported the AdLib, the Sound Blaster, and the Disney Sound Source for digital effects, and only the AdLib and the Sound Blaster for MIDI music. Uh, the sound effects were definitely a little bit muddy, as you heard, especially the digitized voices of the enemy soldiers. I also remember having eternal debates about exactly what it was the soldiers said when they saw you. Uh, it turns out to be halt, but uh, you could hardly tell that from the uh, the kind of muddy digital audio clip that uh, that's played. And uh, you know, you just heard the um, the theme song from uh, from Wolfenstein 3D and the music is actually much better than I remember. Uh, according to the composer Bobby Prince, uh, the music was originally written using much higher fidelity synthesizers than what you hear in the game and what you just heard playing in the background in this segment. Uh, unfortunately, the AdLib was kind of the standard PC hardware in 1991, and so the music had to be downgraded to play on it. So the original sound that Bobby Prince intended never really made it into the game. Uh, even still, the music is definitely on par with the early 1990s, and it does a good job of keeping the mood in the game. Uh, the tracks include some epic-sounding marches with military elements and plenty of eerie atmospheric kind of stuff. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So, the development story of Wolfenstein 3D. Oh, I'm going to try and do a little bit of an overview of this whole thing, because as big as this game was, there have been books and interviews and all kinds of stuff written about id and written about this game. So, let's see what we can see here. Uh, the story of Wolfenstein 3D starts in a few places. Uh, it starts with four guys in Louisiana. It also starts with a 1981 game by Muse Software called Castle Wolfenstein and another game called Catacomb 3D. So let's start with the people. Uh, John Carmack grew up in Kansas City and he was a bit of a troublesome youth, even spending some time in, uh, in Juvenile Hall, I believe we can call it. Uh, he did, however, have a large interest in computers and uh, attended the University of Missouri for two semesters before dropping out and becoming a very talented freelance programmer. Uh, our second John is John Romero. He was born in Colorado Springs, and he was also very interested in computers, uh, programming, game design, things like that. Uh, before he met up with John Carmack, he had published quite a few successful games for the Apple II, and uh, in 1987, after eight years of kind of freelancing and, and getting well-known in the Apple II, in the Apple community and whatever, he, he landed a job at Origin Systems, which I talked about back in the, uh, in the Wing Commander episode. He, uh, he did some more Apple II work there until he left to create uh, his own company and work on his own projects, none of which really panned out. We can talk about them in detail, but they don't really have much bearing on, uh, on Wolfenstein. 3D. What did have some bearing on Wolfenstein 3D is in 1989 when he moved to Shreveport, Louisiana to become a programmer at Softdisk, which, uh, which was a company that kind of created what they referred to as disc-based magazines containing a variety of programs for computer enthusiasts. Uh, he joined their special projects division where, coincidentally, our previous John, John Carmack, was also working. So by 1990, John Romero would uh, create a games division within Softdisk. To staff it, he tapped his buddy that he had made friends with, John Carmack. And in addition, he also got an artist whose name was Adrian Carmack. No relation between John and Adrian Carmack. And uh, finally, they also uh, recruited a guy named Tom Hall, who was a game designer. So we've got John Carmack, John Romero, Adrian Carmack, no relation, and Tom Hall. So two Johns, two Carmacks, and a Tom. <laughs> uh, during this time, when they were kind of forming this games division at Softdisk, which I believe they called Gamer's Edge or Game's Edge or something to that effect, uh, John Carmack had figured out how to program high-speed side-scrolling graphics on the PC with similar performance uh, to that seen on game consoles of the times. Picture you know, side-scroller games on the NES. Now, at the time, PC hardware could not render graphics as quickly as the game consoles could. Excited about this, 
Carmack stayed up half the night recreating the first level from one of his favorite games, Super Mario Bros. 3, using stock graphics from a game he and uh, John Romero were working on. Romero saw the demo, and he saw the potential in it. At this point, the group of four would kind of moonlight on the side, creating their own remake of Mario 3, using idle softest computers, kind of at night, off hours, on weekends, and all that. Uh, when they thought they had something pretty solid to show, they presented it to Nintendo. We said, you know, they showed up at Nintendo and said, look, we made a version of Mario 3 that will uh, that'll run on computers. You know, don't you guys want this? Isn't this incredible? We want to make it for real, and we want to make you guys a lot of money. Uh, Nintendo quickly turned them down. Nintendo said that they were not interested in the PC market, and Mario was to forever remain on Nintendo hardware, which I believe to this day is still the case. Uh, while they were striking out with Nintendo, another publisher caught wind of the team. His name was Scott Miller, and he was the president of Apogee Software. He contacted Romero under the guise of multiple fan letters. Uh, eventually, John Romero came to realize that all these fan letters they were getting originated from the same address. So he went over to, uh, to Apogee, or I'm not sure if he went over there himself, or he gave him a call and, uh, and confronted Miller. And Miller explained that the deception was necessary since companies at the time, and I believe even today to a certain degree, were very protective of, uh, of their talent. And it was really the only way that he could think of to get Romero to initiate contact with him. So Miller suggested that they develop shareware games that he would distribute. As a result, the id Software team began the development of Commander Keen, a Mario-style side-scrolling game for the PC. Once again, they borrowed softest computers to do the work at odd hours at uh, at the lake house at which they lived in uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana. Now, I do want to talk for a second uh, about this whole concept of shareware. Now, at the time, shareware was uh, was a very interesting concept, which uh, which still kind of exists today, but not really in the same form. So, for example, what they did with Commander Keen is they would put out uh, the first episode of the game these games tended to be episodic, so they'd put out the first episode for free. You know, you'd go to a store and maybe you'd pay $3 just to kind of cover the cost of the disc that it was on. And uh, and you'd get a copy of, you know, the first episode of Commander Keen. And now this was not a demo. This was actually a fully realized game. And you'd play through, and it was, you know, relatively of, of a reasonable length, or whatever, and you'd get to the end, and then your option at that point was to, uh, you know, just live with what you had for free, or if you wanted the rest of the game, the, the follow-up episodes, you would uh, quote-unquote register your shareware by sending a certain amount of money to the company, and, uh, and you know, they would send you the rest of the disc, so you'd go to a store and you'd buy it, and whatever, so, you know, that that's how the concept of shareware worked, and it was really quite successful for, uh, for id Software, specifically, and many other games in general. So uh, on December 14th, 1990, the first episode of, uh, of Commander Keen was released as shareware by Miller's company Apogee, or Apogee, I believe it's Apogee. The orders began to roll in. Shortly after this, Softdisk management learned of the team's deception and suggested, you know, they didn't get mad, they didn't say you're fired, they suggested that they form a new company together. But the uh, management and administration staff at Softdisk threatened to resign if such an arrangement were made. In a legal settlement, the team was required to provide a game to Softdisk every two months for a certain period of time, but they would do so on their own. They couldn't use Softdisk's uh, resources or anything like that. They were basically contracted as a sub to, to Softdisk to, to, provide them, uh, to provide them games. So on February 1st, with the, with the result of this, on February 1st, 1991, id Software was founded. Uh, one of id's first games, which actually was somewhat in development uh, back at Softdisk, was called Catacomb 3D. Uh, Catacomb 3D featured a first-person view where you would only see the player's hand in the actual game viewport. Uh, this game definitely you know, had the roots of Wolfenstein 3D in it. You'd kind of run around these catacombs fighting enemies and, and all that from, again, a first-person view. And so keeping this in mind, another cool thing that they did at id Software was that each of their games was packaged and they kind of would license the base source code, so kind of the base game engine 
for reuse by, you know, either internally by them or by other third-party game developers. So with, by doing this, the, uh, the Catacomb 3D engine was really a very strong starting point for, uh, for their next game, which would soon become known as Wolfenstein 3D. So the team had previously played a game that was released in 1981, as I said right at the top of this section, by Muse Software called Castle Wolfenstein. Uh, the game was very, very similar in concept to, uh, to what I've already described, except it was done in kind of a very primitive, top-down, kind of third-person, almost kind of like a board game style. Like you'd move from place to place and avoid and fight enemies and whatever. Uh, it also involved a much more stealth-style gameplay than, uh, than Wolfenstein 3D did, which was really more run-and-gun. And the guys really liked this, and they thought it would make a really great uh, basis for their new first-person shooter. Uh, luckily, Muse Software had let the, uh, the trademark to Castle Wolfenstein lapse. Luckily, they were able to... Uh, to, to remake the game without any legal issues whatsoever. So the development began in late 1991 on a vastly reworked version of Castle Wolfenstein. It pitched this concept to Scott Miller, founder of Apogee Software, who, unlike many of the other uh, game developers that we've talked about in the past, or the game publishers that we've talked about in the past, loved the idea and promised to give them $100,000 in funding to deliver a first shareware title. So as is usual with uh, these early concept stages, early concepts of the game included much more gameplay type and much more functionality than was eventually included in the final release. Uh, like the Muse software version, the intention was to have a very innovative stealth kind of game, dragging dead bodies around, swapping uniforms with fallen guards, sneak and silent attacks, etc., 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 etc. Uh, these ideas were dropped, however, since they really drastically slowed the game down and made the controls very, very complicated. Uh, secret walls, which were uh, sections of a wall that a player could push to reveal a hidden area, were also hotly debated in development. Uh, the game designers, Tom Hall and John Romero, pushed repeatedly for this feature because, uh, you know, they were of the mind that secrets were integral to a good and replayable game. Uh, Carmack, as the lead developer, initially resisted the idea, but eventually he capitulated and implemented push walls in a manner that he liked uh, into the game. So id Software planned to release one shareware episode and uh, would then allow the game would allow gamers to buy the full trilogy, uh, following as I you know explained before the shareware model, profitably executed with uh, with their Commander Keen game. Scott Miller, though, after learning that it only took a single day to hammer out a Wolf 3D level, successfully argued that the id team should produce two trilogies, which led to the second Nocturnal Missions uh, set of episodes. So the game released a generally favorable reviews. However, due to its Nazi content, it was definitely surrounded by a bit of controversy. Uh, since... The game was rife with Nazi symbolism, and the theme song that I played was actually the uh, anthem of the Nazi party. Uh, in 1994, it was removed from circulation in Germany because it is my understanding that it is actually illegal in Germany to use Nazi symbolism uh, aside from in very specific government-approved situations. Again, my understanding is that Germans are, are slightly sensitive about their role in, uh, in the Second World War, or maybe in their country's role in the Second World War. So with this controversy in mind, uh, at the time the Super Nintendo was out, and Nintendo was interested in, create, in, uh, in a port of Wolf 3D. However, to get this approved by Nintendo, who was very scared of, uh, of reprisals and controversies and things like that, uh, the SNES port was required to remove all swastikas and other Nazi references, and uh, at the end of episode three, when you actually fight Hitler, they, uh, they commanded that his mustache be removed and his name be changed. Also, in a very strange non-Nazi-related uh, change, uh, the attack dogs were swapped out with giant rats, since, of course, I would imagine that killing rats is more acceptable than killing cute German shepherds. <laughs> Anyways, 
Another very positive point about this game is that while Wolfenstein 3D was not originally intended to be modifiable, uh, a very big mod community grew up around it. This community created level editors and tools which allowed modders to add their own sprites to the game, change sound effects, and uh, add different kinds of events to the game engine. I remember playing a, a version of Wolfenstein 3D where you killed you know, Cartman from South Park over and over again. And, uh, you know, this became very, uh, very popular. Uh, this movement really heavily influenced id in their later FPS games, such as Doom and Quake, to, to really support modding out of the box. This was a very, very, very smart move and has allowed uh, id's game engines to, along with a few others, really become de facto standards in kind of the indie game community. Uh, Wolfenstein 3D was followed by several sequels and spin-offs. Spear of Destiny, a prequel to Wolfenstein 3D, was released very soon after the original game and used basically the exact same engine. Uh, a mission pack called Wolfenstein 3D Super Upgrades was released in 93 using the, uh, the Wolf 3D engine, and this pack actually contains something like 815 new maps along with a random map generator, a level editor, and replacement game files for the original game. Uh, another kind of spin-off was Rise of the Triad. Uh, this game was originally planned as an expansion to Wolfenstein 3D, which would use the original game's engine with, you know, some improved features. But uh, the idea was postponed long enough that the uh, Rise of the Triad team ended up going in a different direction with that game. But I think it would have been very interesting to see a version of Rise of the Triad, which I did play, and perhaps I will you know, do another episode on, uh, as it was originally intended as, uh, as an expansion to Wolfenstein 3D. Finally, well not finally, but uh, more recently, and one that may be in other people's memories, is uh, Return to Castle Wolfenstein, which was a first-person shooter reboot to Wolfenstein 3D released in 2001. Uh, the gameplay and setting are very similar to the original, but the game was built on the much more modern Quake 3 Arena engine, so it was fully 3D with much better sound and much better gameplay and you know a bit more of an interactive story and all that. So like the original, Return to Castle Wolfenstein begins as an escape mission from Castle Wolfenstein, but from there the game stories just go in completely different directions. Uh, if I remember right, the uh, the story had much more to do with uh, with the occult and that kind of angle of, uh, of the original game than with uh, mutants and things like that. I, I actually do remember having quite a bit of fun with uh, with Return to Castle Wolfenstein. Wolfenstein Enemy Territory is a spin-off to Return to Castle Wolfenstein, which was released in 2003, and it's a free, full-version, multiplayer-only game. And uh, finally, Wolfenstein RPG, which was an RPG continuation of the Wolfenstein franchise, was previewed at QuakeCon in 2008, and it's a full-version game again, released for mobile phones in November 2008, and uh, again in 2009 for the iPhone and iPod Touch. Now, I have never actually seen Wolfenstein RPG, but I think that would be something that would be very interesting to check out on your mobile device. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So where can you get Wolfenstein 3D today? Uh, this game has been released on so many different platforms over the years that it's hard to find something that doesn't have a version of it on it. I remember, you know, the weirdest place I saw it was way back when, when, uh, you know, iPods were still a new thing. And uh, someone that I worked with had a, an old iPod mini, kind of the black and white aluminum bodied iPod minis. And he, uh, he, I guess, jailbroke it. I don't even know if jailbreaking was a term at the time. And uh, he put Wolfenstein 3D on his iPod mini. So you were there playing it with a scroll wheel on the little black and white uh, LCD or green and green and brown LCD screen. And, uh, you know, it ran quickly and it ran well. And I was I was very impressed. But these days from kind of above board sources, uh, the PC version can be purchased on Steam for $4.99 US or in a pack with Spear of Destiny and Return to Castle Wolfenstein for $14.99. On iOS, there's a free version and a paid version on the App Store for your iPhone, iPod Touch, or iPad. And uh, Google Play has a version of it for Android devices as well. But more interestingly, uh, in the past, I believe it was about a month or two ago, uh, in honor of Wolfenstein 3D's 20th anniversary, they released 
a, uh, a free-to-play version on your browser, which you can play by going in any browser to uh, wolfenstein.com, and the game loads up right there, and you can play, I believe it's actually the whole, all six episodes of the first game, just right there in your browser. Uh, if you'd rather play it on your PC or on your device, there's those ways to get it, but if you just want to go and, and tool around a little bit, then wolfenstein.com is the place to check that out. So this week I received one email from uh, from James, and uh, he writes, Hi Joe, had to listen to your podcasts since Wing Commander. Nostalgia all around. This week is Wolf 3D, I take it. Uh, have a lot of fond memories for me. Perhaps not as groundbreaking as Doom, where lighting was first used in a game to create a real sense of atmosphere, as well as more advanced 3D walls, but definitely remember a lot of Nazi blasting in that game. As I recall, it used the same key system to advance... Uh, in a level as Commander Keen, and the same gameplay as Hover Tank 3D and Catacomb 3D, but with a more refined interface and better graphics. I also remember playing through two other games using the Wolf 3D engine, namely Blakestone and Corridor 7. I can remember spending a lot of hours finding all the secret rooms as well, and drawing out maps of each level on graph paper to try and keep track of it all. Looking forward to your cast. And then he actually followed up with another quick one-liner saying forgot to mention it was around the time that i got my first sound card originally i played it with pc speaker but playing with full sound made it a completely different game and uh and i'll agree with that and you know i'm, I'm happy that you mentioned uh blake stone and corridor 7 and all that because you know i did mention how how uh id tends to package their their game engines for for use by other people so you know a lot of a lot of games came out that were using the engine that looked a lot like uh like wolfenstein and, uh, you know, they were also a lot of fun, but, you know, they, it kind of triggered, I guess, if you want to call it the, the era of clones. And I'd say it happened more later on with Doom, and we're definitely going to do a podcast about Doom. But, uh, you know, they would create these game engines, so all the heavy lifting of, of programming, the high-performance graphics, and all that stuff was done. So all people really had to do was come up with a concept, come up with some music, come up with some uh, some graphical uh stuff and uh and you know boom you had a game so you started to see a lot of these you know games that looked a lot like wolfenstein 3d games that looked a lot like commander king games that looked a lot like doom games that looked a lot like quake all coming out and uh you know that was that was really cool and and i believe just like you james i also started playing this game initially with the pc speaker and later on when i got my really cruddy sound blaster uh imitation card uh, again, yeah, same as same as with Wing Commander, uh, the game took on a whole new life. You know, the music was good, the 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 yelling Nazis were good, and and it really did create a good sense of atmosphere for me, despite the fact that the uh, that the sound quality wasn't quite uh, where it sh where it should be today, or where you'd think it would be today. So thank you for that, James. That was a great email. So that brings us to uh, to the big question: Does Wolfenstein 3D hold up? today uh here is where i may get a little bit controversial in some people's mind now in 1991 i loved this game it was a ton of fun it was great action <laughs> granted the way the graphics would update tended to make me motion sick after a while but despite that it was still a lot of fun and i played this game honestly i am certain for hours i played through all the episodes multiple times found all the secrets did everything loved it crazy guy for wolfenstein 3d Upon replaying it this uh, this time around for the podcast, I will say it is very limited. Now, this is a pure single-player first-person shooter game. And honestly, I feel like in the world today, with the gamers that we have today, and even the gamers of then who've become the gamers of today, like you know, like me and, and you listeners, uh, games like this just don't really cut it anymore. Since later games like Half-Life and Halo really introduced uh, elements of story into the game, and since 3D, you know, true 3D introduced concepts of, of height and different angles and things like that, uh, you know, just running around blasting computer-controlled enemies doesn't really provide you with enough motivation to progress. And the fact, like I said, that each level is basically a flat maze with no concept of up or down. There aren't even stairs in this game. Everything is just flat on the same plane and there's no verticality. Uh, there really isn't enough here to keep my attention for very long. 
Also coupled with the fact that after 15 minutes, the game continues to make me motion sick. Uh, but despite this fact, it's very important to realize that without this basic gameplay of Wolfenstein 3D, later FPS games like Halo and Half-Life that really revolutionized the genre after Wolfenstein 3D, uh, these games wouldn't exist. So this game is is ultra important in that, you know, it really inspired what what came after it. Do you ever wish you could go back in time? Join me on Out of Range Podcast, and you almost can, when I rediscover childhood favourites from TV, movies, toys, comic books, and much more. The usually irregular, but always entertaining geeky media show, Out of Range, can be found at dangelous.com slash outofrange. Search for Out of Range in iTunes, or the podcast app of your choice. So that's that. I mean, there's so much more I could say. I could probably go on about, you know, more development stuff and more, you know, just interesting facts about Wolf 3D and all that for for hours. I mean, as I said way back when in the show, books have been written about id and written about this game. But I hope I was at the very least able to provide you with a general overview of Wolfenstein 3D. So, you know, thanks to James for the email and everyone else for listening. Uh, Next time we are going to cover one of my favorite real-time strategy games and strategy game series, Command & Conquer. It's actually one of the few uh, real-time strategy games that I've really spent a lot of time with because for some reason, after this one, I don't know, I didn't do quite as well on them. But uh, but yeah, Command & Conquer coming up next week. If you guys got anything to say about it, feel free to, uh, to drop me a note. Though, as usual, I will thank Rick Moyer for his great audio work with the theme songs and bumpers and, and all of that stuff. Uh, you can find much more info about the show at umbcast.com. Uh, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We have some really fun discussions there. And like I said, I post all kinds of news and deals from Steam and GOG and everything else over there. And, you know, we, we generally have a, a fairly good time. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. And, uh, of course, subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you want to leave a, a podcast review there, that would be greatly appreciated. And you can also stream us live on Stitcher Radio. So thanks a lot, everyone. And we will see you next time in the Upper Memory Block. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.